This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That is John 9.35. Guys, we're so glad to have you here on today's show. If you've not left us a five-star review, wherever you're listening to this, please leave us five stars. That's how the show will continue to get out to more people. Show us some love there. Also, just a reminder, we are partnered with Origin. They make some of the best products in America. They're bringing manufacturing back to America. So if you do jujitsu, they have geese. They have rash guards. If you're just a regular dude, they've got jeans. They've got boots. They've got work boots, steel toe boots. They've got hunting gear, which I just got a lot of my hunting gear in here recently. And then over on the Jocko Fuel side, they've got the Jocko Go Energy Drinks. They've got an entire line of supplements. And guys, if you use the promo code UNDAUNTED, okay, so just the very first word of this podcast, UNDAUNTED, you will get 10% off your order at Origin Maine or OriginUSA.com. That will be in the show notes. And need to go ahead and dress the elephant in the room. For those of you that watch us on YouTube, okay, so I know most of you listen to it, but for those of you that watch us, the last two, the Forging Table episodes, uh, didn't have video. Okay. And my no video, I meant no video of me and the three other people at the table actually talking. Um, well, when you're running a show and when you do things and when you're basically doing everything by yourself, uh, you make mistakes. <laughs> and so on one of those, uh, I forgot to hit record. I think that was this past week's. And then the one before that, I have no idea where the video file is. I looked for the little micro SD card. I looked at my computer, no idea. So I just made like a little cool graphic. But for those of you that are wondering, okay, is it just going to be this graphic every time? No, as long as I can, you know, remove my head from my rear end long enough to hit the record button, we shouldn't have that problem as we move forward. But as I've teed up for long enough, if you guys are listening to this on time, this is February the 23rd, and this is the last day. This is the very end of our knife raffle. So again, guys, we did a giveaway of a custom-made Stevenson knife that was going to be a fundraiser, not only for Undaunted Life, but also the Hope Pregnancy Center here in Edmond, Oklahoma. And just earlier, we did a video. This is going to be the same video that is posted on Instagram or whatever. We have a winner. So let's go to the video here. All right, guys, if you're wondering what this crazy color wheel is, it's because we are on wheelofnames.com. And what this is, is this is everybody that donated to try to win this custom Stevenson knife. Half of the money is going to support Undaunted Life, and the other half is going to help the Hope Pregnancy Center here in Edmond, Oklahoma. Guys, every single one of these is a different person that donated. And if you donated, you know, above $20, you know, every 20 bucks got your name on this list. This is everybody. And guys, we raised about $5,000. Again, half is going to Undaunted Life. The other half is the Hope Pregnancy Center. But guys, without further ado, let's see who's going to win this knife. Here we go. Ooh, do you feel the drama? Do you feel the drama? Steven Addison. All right, guys. Steven Addison is our winner. Thank you again to Stevenson Knives for providing us this custom knife and also to all of you that have donated. We really, really appreciate you guys. Keep seeking the line of Judah. All right, there you go, guys. So Stephen Addison, thank you so much for being one of the donors and um, just congratulations. Obviously, we'll connect with you to make sure that knife gets out to you as quickly as possible. But I just wanted to give my literal heartfelt and sincere thank you to every single one of you that donated. We had people that donated everything from $20 up to $1,000. And I think the big deal for this is it's not just supporting Undaunted Life, but it is directly going to the Hope Pregnancy Center. It's going directly to help protect kids from murder 
to, you know, these un, just these beautiful little babies in the womb, protecting them from potentially being murdered by their parents and by the doctor and supporting a ministry that is taking care of these babies, not even before they're not just before they're born, rather, but even well after making sure that the moms and dads and everybody is well taken care of. You guys did that around $5,000 was the final total. And we're going to be running a check over there just as soon as we can get out of the studio and get over there. So big, big thank you to you guys. We really, really appreciate it. Now, I want to tell you, I know there's a lot of you guys out there that like our quick hitter segment, and we haven't really done that on the last several solo episodes, and we've had a lot of interviews to release recently, but we're not going to be doing a normal quick hitter here, but I just want to do something for the very, very beginning. I want to give you my very quick thoughts on the so-called revival that was going on at Asbury University. And so everybody's talked about this. Uh, A lot of people have asked me for my opinion on this, and here's the deal. There's been a lot of iterations of my feelings on this. At first, I was like, ah, it's, it's not really a story. Like, it's just, you know, kind of an interesting thing happening. And then it continued to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And then people are going and visiting, visiting it. There's people coming from all over the world to visit Asbury University there in Kentucky and to kind of do all these different things. But I had some questions that came to mind as I was thinking through the situation at Asbury. So very early on, I was going to ask, is it a revival or is it just like an annoyingly long worship service? Okay. So that was like kind of my first question in my mind that I didn't pose to anybody because it's kind of a mean question, but also it's like, okay, these are students. Is this really a revival or do they just not want to go to class? But then I had to, to kind of get a handle on my cynical side and a lot of people helped me with that. And I listened to John Cooper's podcast and listened to his thoughts on that. It's like, okay, Kyle, like chill out, just relax. You know, let's put the cynicism aside for just a second. So then the question morphed to, shouldn't we want the revival to be real? Because I saw a lot of people online that are, you know, a lot of people that kind of come from the reformed Calvinist side that they've never seen a church service that they've liked unless it's, you know, one that John MacArthur's doing or someone that just literally reads the words of Calvin the entire time. And so you have these people that are like, well, it's not a, it's not a revival because of this, this, and this. And did you hear about this? And did you hear about that? And the thing was, is I couldn't substantiate a lot of the claims that were happening and it wasn't just coming from reformed guys. So guys don't get your, uh, get your IPAs in a water, whatever, but like, At this point, I was like, okay, there's some weird stuff happening. There's some weird people there. There's some weird things being said, but we should really hope that revival is happening. We should really, really hope that it is happening. And for a few days, it's like, okay, this thing's like expanding and there's so many people coming in and people that just want to be there and they're, they're turning these big time pastors away because they don't want what's happening there to be overturned and kind of the focus to be off of what's happening. But now the question is, Is it actually a revival if it ends when the president of the university declares that it's over? Because for those of you that haven't been paying attention in the last couple of days, the president of Asbury University, I don't have his name here in front of me, but he actually said that, hey, uh, there's been about 50,000 people that have showed up to our small town. This town just does not have uh, the, the things in place to take care of these people, to house them, to feed them, to do all these different things. Like, you know, we're just shutting down the revival or we're moving it to several other different places. So I'm going out on my skis a little bit because I may change my mind later and I reserve the right to do so. I don't think you can call it a revival if one man can say because of logistical problems and struggles, we're going to have to stop this. I don't think if it's a real movement of God that you're going to let the lack of sufficient hotel rooms and restaurants and you know lawn chairs really keep you from keeping this thing going. 
And so as much as I was really wanting this to kind of be this big, huge movement of God, I just don't really see it. You've already seen advertisements for where the quote unquote revival is being moved to these offsite places. They're doing advertisements like, hey, the first 600 people to show up will get, you know, Chick-fil-A and a T-shirt or something like that. It's like, okay, if it's if it's a revival, if it's a real movement of God, do you need to incentivize people showing up to it? Again, I was cynical at the beginning and I really had to kind of check myself and say, hey, if this is a real movement of God, I don't want to be the one of the ones wagging my finger at it saying, oh, well, you're not doing it properly. But then we get to the end here and it's like, okay, it looks like it was just a really, really long service that just kind of kept going. And then the students got excited and the people in the community got excited and the people from outside the community came into the community to keep the excitement going. But I don't think that we can actually call this a revival. Now, I got a couple of other things, and guys, don't worry, I'm definitely going to get to the Jordan Peterson thing, but I don't know when the next time is that I'm going to be talking to you, you know, live, like on the same week that I'm actually recording. So I do want to give you a couple of updates. One update is on my throat and on my voice. And I'll tell you just from the jump here, my throat is terrible right now. I literally have like a double batch right here. I don't know if if you guys watching this, I literally have like two tea bags in here. So I got a double batch of throat coat tea going on right now. I got water, I got lozenges, the whole deal. But I have received a diagnosis on the problem with my throat. And so without getting into all of that and without getting into all the details, I went to a very renowned uh, ear, nose, and throat doctor here in my area that has had a lot of success with helping people with major voice issues, even voice issues that are way worse than mine. But this is an issue that I've been dealing with for about 20 years. And now that I do professional speaking on a podcast and live and all that, it's obviously a very detrimental thing. It got to the point, I think I mentioned this the last time I talked about my voice, where I'm avoiding seeing people that I know, like at the grocery store or walking the dogs in the neighborhood, because I'm like, man, they're going to make me talk. Like I'm going to have to talk for two or three minutes and I just don't want to do that. You know, I'm sitting here right now looking at some speaking gigs that I have coming up and some different things that I have going on here that I need to talk, you know, just dyadically with people across the table or up on a stage in front of a bunch of people. And I'm like, man, you know, this is going to really, really suck. I have to do a lot of preparation. It's a terrible place to be where you're not confident in your instrument. And for me, my instrument is my voice, but I do have a diagnosis and I have a plan of action. And so uh, in the beginning of April, I am going to be getting surgery. So they are going to be cutting me open and you know, putting some you know stuff up in my my vocal cord area and some different things like that. Again, not getting into all the details, but there's going to be a recovery process after that. And the thing is, is while I'm hopeful about this, uh, it's not a guarantee because my voice could be fixed. My voice could be the exact same or my voice could actually get significantly worse uh, from this particular surgery. And so, uh, I'm hopeful, but I I do still need your guys's prayers. What we are going to do, and I'll talk about this again before the time comes, but for April and May, don't be shocked if we go down to two episodes a week, just the forging table on Sunday and the interview on Tuesday, because I'm going to have a whole bunch of interviews in the can. I'm doing a lot of interviews in March to make sure that I can have stuff to release in April and May. If there are things that go wrong, uh, the worst case scenario is if there's significant damage to my voice and vocal cords that where I can't continue talking, I will have someone else come on this podcast feed, read something or give an update uh, to you guys, uh, because that would stretch maybe into June and July. And obviously we want to avoid any other issues like that, but uh, I don't want to say that to like scare anybody. Cause believe me, I, I'm scared that, you know, my voice could possibly get worse than it is right now. But I know a lot of you guys were praying for me. I got a lot of messages, a lot of emails from you guys saying that you're praying for me and that, you know, if there's anything I can do and here's some suggestions and all that, I appreciate all that, but that is the update. 
April, second week of April, I will be getting vocal cord surgery. There will be no interruption in the show, aside from if you're used to the three episodes, it'll go down to two for a short period of time. Again, if all things go well, I'll go right back into the normal cadence and things. You'll just, you know, hear a slightly stronger voice. So there's the update on that. So before I get to the next thing, taking a quick sip. One quick thing again, before I get to the Jordan Peterson stuff. On episode 426 of this podcast, I talked about my concerns with some of the things that I've heard Pastor J.D. Greer say. Okay, so guys, if you have not listened to episode 426 of this podcast, at least go back and listen to the intro. You don't have to listen to the entire thing, but go back and listen to the intro where I talk about J.D. Greer so that you can be caught up and, and up to speed. And so there were a lot of responses that I got. So the responses I got from a lot of people were anything from, hey, he's a good dude. He's one of the good guys. Like, you know, uh, you maybe should have thought about that a little bit more all the way up to you're a horrible person. J.D. Greer is the best. Why in the world are you trying to create schism within the church and, and all this kind of stuff? So the responses were literally all over the place. But many people shared with me this article that J.D. Greer published on the Gospel Coalition's website called Downplaying the Sin of Homosexuality Won't Win the Next Generation. So the link to that is in the show notes, guys. I would highly suggest you go read that. But I want to cover one thing right from the jump to everyone that got so offended. Again, not everyone that reached out to me was like, you know, clutching their pearls as they were typing the email. But there were a lot of people that were offended that I would dare talk about their favorite pastor, J.D. Greer. My episode, again, this is just logistics here. My episode came out at 3 a.m. Central Standard Time on February the 9th. That episode was written and recorded a couple of days even before that. So like on February the 7th, the Gospel Coalition article from Greer also came out on February the 9th, but it came out after my episode. So obviously, had I been able to tell the future, I would have waited and read the article before making my commentary. Okay. So I can't be judged on the information I didn't have. I can only be judged on the information that I did have. But let's talk a little bit about the actual article to, you know, because some of you think I made a fool of myself because I released this podcast before this article even came out. And, you know, essentially you were so offended because I was like, hey, we need to keep a very close eye on Pastor J.D. Greer. Again, I think I was very, very fair in my initial commentary and I gave him several outs saying, hey, he could probably clarify. But in the article, again, it's in the show notes. Greer addresses all the hubbub created by Andy Stanley. Again, I go into a ton of detail about that on episode 423 of this podcast, and that's where I lay out my argument that Andy Stanley is actually a heretic. So go back and listen to 423 if you haven't listened to that. But there are some key quotes from J.D. Greer's article on the Gospel Coalition website. One of them is, up to this point, you might be thinking I support Stanley's approach or at least sympathize with it, but I don't. Okay, so this is on the tail end of his introduction where it, it actually does seem like, oh, he's going to be coming to Andy Stanley's defense here. But then he says, but I don't. Okay, so it's like, all right, buckle up. He's going to start making his arguments. Another quote from there that is very key is the call to repentance isn't just offensive to gay people. It's offensive to us all. Okay, so that's one thing in this whole space where there's a lot of people that try to separate sinners. So you have the sin of homosexuality and acting out homosexually, and then there's all the other sins. Okay, but he's making the correct point that the call to repentance, you know, that comes from the gospel and the need for the propitiation of sins before you can become uh, in the presence of a holy and just God, it's offensive to everybody. But when we pretend that it's especially offensive to gay people, that that's actually wrong. And another quick quote uh, from there is this. He said, ambiguity on this issue isn't kindness. Kindness, clarity is. So ambiguity on this issue isn't kindness. Clarity is. 
And so throughout the article, again, I'll, I'll let you go ahead and read it. He's trying to make very, very clear arguments as to kind of why he's saying things in the way that he is and the arguments he's making. And if I were to summarize the article, I would do so in this way. Pastors should not shrink away from the tough topics, but we must present the gospel message with grace and truth. So again, I'm nothing if not fair. That is how I would summarize J.D. Greer's thoughts. I think that's a fair assessment. Again, I would encourage you to go read it for yourself to determine what you think to see if I'm being fair and in, in how I'm, you know, summarizing that. But as I was preparing this episode today, I came across another video. And believe me, I wasn't seeking it out. These videos are like finding me. But this is another video that should be very concerning. So in this clip, it's a clip from a conversation between Debbie Causey, who I mentioned on the Andy Stanley podcast, who is a pastor, quote unquote, at North Point, which is Andy Stanley's church. And it's a conversation with her and Greg and Lynn McDonald. So Greg and Lynn McDonald both serve as counselors for North Point. The McDonald's also work with a gay affirming so-called Christian ministry called the Reformation Project. Okay, so let's hear what Greg McDonald had to say in this interaction between him, his wife and Debbie Causey. Yeah, I think for me, the, the thing that I hear parents most concerned about is uh, their child going to hell. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's the thing that um, it's, it's universal. Everybody is very, very concerned about that. Um, you know, uh, recently I heard, um, I read an article where J.D. Greer was, was speaking, and I loved what he said. He said, um, homosexuality doesn't send you to hell. He said, I know that because being heterosexual doesn't send you to heaven. Mm-hmm. What sends you to hell is refusing to allow Jesus to be the Lord and center of your life, regardless of how it manifests, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, when, when I heard that, I was like, oh man, that, that, that just really sums it up. And again, for most parents, you know, they, um, um, they, they, they don't get that. And so that's part of, Part of our ministry is helping parents um, and, and understand that journey. That's the thing that can keep parents hemmed up for a long time. And just so you don't think that Greg McDonald is actually misquoting J.D. Greer here, here's the clip of J.D. Greer actually saying that. Homosexuality does not send you to hell. You know how I know that? Because heterosexuality does not send you to heaven. Now, I don't know if that specific quote is attributable to Greer in its origin, because I literally saw several other videos, one of Tim Keller and another one of another guy I didn't recognize, where they either said that exact quote verbatim or almost verbatim. Okay. Now, a couple of things with that clip with Greg McDonald. One thing Greg McDonald said is that, you know, every, you know, parent is concerned about their child going to hell. That's universal. He's not talking about that's universal with all parents everywhere with any type of child. He's talking specifically about gay and lesbian children. That's specifically what he's talking about. So he's, he's being performative and saying that somehow it's different. The the level of concern of the souls of your children is different if they uh, align or identify as LGBTQ plus. Okay. So to not belabor this any further, because I I definitely don't want this to turn into the JD Greer update podcast where every week I come on here, I have to talk about this, but a few things. Number one, I'm glad he wrote the article. Because again, if you go back to my initial comments on J.D. Greer, I said, hey, if I were sitting down with him, I would want clarification on da 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 and I laid it all out there. So he gave some clarifying thoughts in this. So I'm really glad that he wrote the article. I'm glad for every single one of you that texted me this, emailed me this, <laughs> DM me this. Believe me, I was covered up in this article. Guys, I get it. Another thought is there are only a few options for what's happening here, okay? 
with this whole situation. A, the McDonald's and, and others are using this Greer quote incorrectly and applying it to their situation to substantiate themselves and their work. B, J.D. Greer is accidentally speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Or C, J.D. Greer is deliberately speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Okay. Now, if I were to venture a guess, I would say that A and B are both true. That A and B are the case. Now, I don't know that to be true, but that's my guess. So I think the McDonald's are using this J.D. Greer quote quote incorrectly and applying it to their situation. And I also think that J.D. Greer is accidentally speaking out of both sides of his mouth. My point is, is that J.D. Greer isn't speaking and writing with as much clarity as he thinks he is. Because here's the thing. I want to be very, very, very specific here. You are not responsible for how somebody uses your quotes or uses your words. You're only responsible for the words that you say and what you meant for them. Uh, the, I guess the, the meaning that you wanted to get across. So if somebody twists the words that you said or twists what you meant, that's not your fault. Again, I've got 400 something episodes out there right now and a bunch of other interviews that I've been on. There are plenty of clippable things where you could take me out of context and make me look as horrible as possible. But those are my words. I'm responsible for my words and how I meant for them to come across. But again, his quote from the article is ambiguity on this issue isn't kindness. Clarity is. So this is what I would say. Again, I laid out, you know, my arguments on on the last time I talked about J.D. Greer on some of the things that are concerning to me on this whole array of kind of woke topics and LGBTQ stuff and race stuff and all that. And this is where I land. Okay, so we can put this J.D. Greer stuff to bed for a little bit. I think that we should still keep an eye on him. Is that so crazy for somebody that has a huge platform, an enormous multi-site church that we should keep an eye on him and hold his feet to the fire? That if he says something or does something that is awkward or poorly worded or poorly delivered, that we should say something about that, that we should raise a red flag, that if you go to one of his churches, and I know there are people from his church that listen to this podcast, I know for a fact, like, shouldn't you make sure that you get him on the record saying this, that, or the other thing? Because one of the things that I very much so appreciated from J.D. Greer's article with the Gospel Coalition is how he was basically encouraging North Point to come out and give clarification on the LGBTQ issue on whether or not they're gay affirming. Now, he did it in a sentence, and I know he probably wrote that thinking, this isn't going to happen in a million years. Of course, they're not going to do this. But he did call for that. I think you should do the same with him. Now, what I'm not saying you should do is that every pastor on the planet, you're just following them around and you got your notebook out and you're just ready for them to mess up so you can jot it down and tell the local news or tell the podcast you like the most or something like that. No, that's not what I'm saying. But these pastors deserve to be respected, but they also deserve to be held account. And if they break that trust, if they break a covenant, if they break from scripture, we should call them out. Is that such a big deal? All right, let's move on from that. So need to talk about my time with Jordan Peterson. And I just got to tell you, as I take another sip here, I am so thankful that this happened. And I'll get into the whole story. I'll just go and get into it now. So there's a mutual friend of Jordan Peterson and me that is, hey, he was like, basically, I know that Jordan Peterson is really important to you. Like, it makes perfect sense. And so he goes, tell you what, check out his tour dates. If his tour is coming anywhere close to you in the next several months, let me know. I'll get you connected with this team and, and then we'll get you guys together. Now, the thing about it is, is like, that's one thing to say that, but then it's just like, 
man, you know, his, he's been touring literally all over the world. But I go to Jordan Peterson's website and wouldn't you know it, he was going to be in Tulsa, Oklahoma, about an hour and a half away from my house, like two weeks from that moment. And so it was like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, let's do this. And so I got introduced to his team. And it's, it's funny enough, it's the same team I've been working with since 2019 to get him on the show. <clears throat> but we get everything coordinated. And it's like, okay, I'm going to go up to Tulsa and I'm going to see his show. But from there, I didn't really know what to expect. So I was very excited. My wife and I were going to go. She likes Jordan Peterson, you know, not nearly as much as me. She hasn't, you know, engaged with his content as much as I have, but we're both very, very excited. And the thing about it is leading up to it. I was thinking, okay, there's a chance I'm going to get to meet him. I don't really know if it's just going to be a handshake and a picture and, you know, get the heck out of here or if I'm going to be able to sit down with him. But Jordan Peterson gets asked four things all the time. He gets asked for a picture. Hey, can you sign my book? Hey, can you, you know, talk to my mom on the phone real quick? I wanted to get him something. So I wanted to to give him something as a gift for me to basically show him, hey, this is, you've had a big impact on me and the stuff that I do. I just wanted to kind of, you know, say thank you. So what I decided to do, the very first idea that came to mind was to get him a Bible. Okay. But more than that. So he has talked about a lot on his uh, podcast and his public appearances in his books about how interesting and important the Bible is. And he specifically says that the Bible is the number one most hyperlinked document in history, meaning that this verse uh, relates to this verse, which relates to these two verses, which relates Mm -hmm. to these verses or something like that. So it's very hyperlinked and it's very cross-reference. He has that image that he's shown sometimes where it's this big image from Genesis to Revelation and it has all the different lines where, you know, this attaches to this and attaches to that. So I go to my local bookstore here in Edmond, Oklahoma, and I go and I get him an ESV, English Standard Version, verse-by-verse reference Bible. So what that is, is that is basically a hyperlinked paper Bible. So on the page, every single scripture that has a uh, corollary to another scripture within, uh, you know, within that, it shows it right there in the footnotes. So it's footnoted. So you can know exactly where this attaches to this and this attaches to that and all that. And then I went to the front and I was going to get his name put on it. So Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. And so it was actually kind of funny. I'm interacting with the guy and, you know, you have to write it in those little block letters and they have to check the spelling and all that. And the guy looks at my paper and he goes, Jordan B. Peterson. I mean, not the Jordan B. Peterson. And then I just kind of look at him. I'm like, no, it's, it's for the Jordan B. Peterson. And then his eyes got real big. He's like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. That this Bible is going to be given to Jordan Peterson, the Jordan Peterson. And I was like, that's the idea. And then all of a sudden he gets like really nervous and he's like, okay. And he's like, check in to make sure he's got the right thing. And okay, are you sure this is spelled right? And okay, are you sure you want it in script letters and not block letters? Are you sure you want it, you know, in gold and all that and all that? So it's kind of a funny interaction, but here we go. I got it. And so the day comes uh, where he's coming to Tulsa. So my wife and I, we, we get a babysitter to, to watch the boys and then we go and head up to Tulsa and we're going to have ourselves a nice dinner. So we go to the Hemingway, a really, really nice restaurant in Tulsa. And so it's kind of like we hadn't had a nice dinner like that basically since our first child was born, you know, almost three years ago. And so we got to have a good time with that. We get over to the uh, convention center and there's just people everywhere, just like so many people. And so I drop her off so she doesn't have to walk on her heels and I go park somewhere off and who knows where. And then I come to the front as she's going through security and security's holding up like this note card with, you know, hey, you can't bring anything in that's bigger than this. And her purse, her little purse, purse that she was carrying was bigger than that. 
And the thing about this purse, this was like her great aunt's like antique purse. And so it's like, okay, we, we can't not bring that in. But then they also weren't going to let me bring in the Bible because it was bigger than that little note card as well. And so I call Jordan Peterson's tour manager. His tour manager comes over, just literally walks us right through security. So that was cool. Again, there's a huge crowd. There's a ton of excitement. And at this point, I'm like, I'm like giddy. Because it's like, you know, without sounding too douchey, like I've been around a lot of celebrities and quote unquote important people in my life. I used to work for Major League Baseball and that was a huge part of my job was hanging out with these so-called important famous people. And I've had, you know, some big people with uh, big followings on this podcast and all that. But like, I was like, oh man, we're here. Like, I don't remember the last time I've been that excited for like a concert or a speech or really anything. I was so, so excited. So we go in there. There's about 3000 people that are in this convention center that there was an opening musician, a guy named David Cotter. I think is how you say his last name. C-O-T-T-E-R. He plays like classical guitar and he played some Rodrigo E. Gabriella and he played some Eagles and different things like that. Just as people were coming in. So that was cool. And then the opening story, or I guess the opening act, you could say was actually Jordan's wife, Tammy Peterson. So she comes out and tells a little story uh, about her and Jordan and about how it attaches to one of the specific rules. That was probably 10 minutes. And then Jordan Peterson comes out. And so he gets a standing ovation right from the beginning, which was cool. Um, and when he gets into his speech, it was actually the first time speaking publicly where he spoke in specific detail about him putting together a rival to the World Economic Forum. So on the Joe Rogan experience here, however many weeks back, he talked about how he was going to create this thing and some of the questions that they were going to be going into. But at ours, at our presentation in Tulsa, he's like, hey, yeah, we've actually decided some things and it's going to be called ARC, A-R-C. And so I literally forgot to jot it down, but I think it's Association of Reasonable Citizens, I think is what ARC stands for. That's when it's going to be called. He went into detail as to all the questions that ARC is going to try to take on why he's presenting that as an alternative to the World Economic Forum. And I just thought it was an absolutely fantastic thing. And it was so interesting. And again, he was just like, hey, this is the first time because we literally just got some of this stuff solidified. So here's kind of how we're going to be working through. And then he started getting into some other points. And, and I won't give, give away, obviously, the entire thing. But there are some very memorable points from his talk. One he talked about after the dragon was slayed in Sleeping Beauty, Prince Charming didn't just walk right up and kiss Sleeping Beauty and, you know, they lived happily ever after. After he slayed the dragon, Prince Charming had to go through a bunch of thorns that were surrounding the castle that were put there by Maleficent and, and all that and um, before he could get to Sleeping Beauty. And he was basically talking about, you know, basically in your life, if you have that dragon, whatever that dragon is, once you slay that dragon and move beyond it, this assumption that that's just going to be easy, smooth sailing from there is not really true because there will always be things that come up and you have to be ready for that. Like that such is life as it were. Another thing that he said is he talked about how, uh, because a lot of you that have daily wire subscriptions, you're watching his Exodus series, which is fantastic by the way, but it's him and like seven other guys around the table that are talking through the, the book of Exodus. And so they did eight episodes that have already been released and then they've done the, the back half and on the back half, there's eight more episodes. And on some of those episodes, Ben Shapiro is a part of that, but he said that he learned from Ben Shapiro and Dennis Prager that the translation of the name Eve, again, of Adam and Eve fame is beneficial adversary. And what's funny is there was kind of a giggle in the audience because most of us don't really know what the, you know, Hebrew of, of Eve and what that means and everything, but beneficial adversary. So for any of you guys out there that have a wife and, you know, if she's got a strong personality or got a lot of things going for herself and you feel like you're butting heads a lot, I, I know that uh, from personal experience, I'd never really thought about it. Like she's a beneficial adversary. 
like that there's there's a reason why she's here in our life you know everyone hears about opposites attract and yeah if you're introverted and your wife extroverted like that's a good thing because you don't want to just both be sitting home and never doing anything or both being outside being obnoxious all the time in public and so you kind of are able to play off of each other but you're also learning how you can complement one another so that was a memorable thing from his speech and then after he did his speech he did a little Q&A with his wife uh, where his wife had the, the questions because you could ask questions as you were coming in there and then you could upvote them or downvote them. And so he did a couple of those, but he talked about how, you know, every couple, every married couple needs to do, you know, 90 minutes of romance one to three times per week. And so what he's talking about, he's talking about that in a lot of ways. So 90 minutes of talking and interacting with one another and, you know, taking care of some of the business things that are part of your relationship. And he also talked about basically coming together romantically, sexually, physically one to three times per week and kind of what that looks like. He also did something kind of cool. He stood up and he, he was showing the audience something that he learned at a dance class with his wife. I think they were in Nashville or something like that. But typically when you're holding, you're doing slow dancing or something like that. So you've got the hand around the waist and then you typically hold hands right? So you're either holding the hand or you're interlocking the fingers, but professional dancers, they don't do that. What they will do is they will put their palms together. And so basically you're pushing back and forth. And so if you're the man and you're leading the dance, you're basically, basically signaling to the woman by the pressure and the movement of your hand, again, that she has to press back on so that you don't lose connection. You're showing her where you want her to go and how you want her to go there and in what speed and all of that. And so he actually did that with Tammy a little bit. So that was kind of interesting. Again, beneficial adversary. You have to have pushing from both sides. But probably the most memorable thing for me from the talk was He talked about when you're going through peaks and valleys in your life, that the goal should not be to operate efficiently and effectively in the moment as you try to return to stasis. That shouldn't be the goal. Your goal should be to operate optimally across the entire bevy of peaks and valleys combined over time to get to the end goal. And I remember that being like earth shattering for me and my wife and I talked about on the way home and she really liked that as well because as you're looking at your life you're either in a peak or in a valley you're not going to be in stasis for very long and you're certainly not going to live there right so you're either on the way up and you're kind of waiting to see when the bomb's going to fall out or you're you know in the valley and you're trying to just scrape and claw to get back to stasis or get back to the good side and so your perspective is stuck in that moment your perspective is stuck in trying to get to stasis or get to positive or to avoid negative, to avoid the valleys. Right. But that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be to look at your life as like, okay, I'm going to have a ton of these. And if I were to be able to begin with the end in mind, if you will, seven habits of a highly effective people, look at it as a line of demarcation from here to the end. And you operate optimally across all of those circumstances. As opposed to, yeah, you know, I did good in that valley and not so good in that valley. Or, yeah, when I was peaked here, I was really cocky about it. And then the next time I was really humble. No, no, no. It's operating optimally across all of that. So hopefully that made sense. But then the show is over. Okay. Gets a standing ovation. Everybody starts to leave. But then there's a a gathering of people that got the VIP tickets. They're kind of hanging out at the front of the stage because that's where, you know, the line's going to be where you basically go through the line, shake his hand. Hey, you're important to me. And then you take a picture and then you get out of there. But his tour manager said, hey, Kyle, after the show is over, just come to this side of the stage and we'll just go from there. Again, I don't know what that means. But basically, it's just my wife and I standing there. And then his tour manager comes out from behind the curtain and says, hey, all right, guys, come on back. And so here we are walking through, I guess, the catacombs of this convention center. And his, uh, his tour manager just walks us into the green room. 
So in the green room, there's a few of his staff members, but it's just him and his wife. And then we just got to hang out. So I'm sitting there with Jordan Peterson, introduce himself, he introduces our, his wife to us, I introduce my wife to him, and then we sit down, and then we're just chatting on the couches. And we're talking about the Exodus series, and we're talking about the, the speech that he gave, and we're talking about the tour and all those different things. And then uh, Cody Jinks, who's a who's a country singer, he came in with his wife, uh, you know, five, ten minutes later. And I was like, you know, I didn't want to hog him, and I knew he needed to go out and do his VIP meet and greet as well. And so then I explained to him, hey, I, I got you this. I pulled the Bible out. I explained what I explained earlier about how he says it's hyperlinked and how this is verse-by-verse reference and how it's got his name on it. And he seemed genuinely very appreciative that I'd done that for him. So he opens it up. He starts looking through. He's like, Oh wow. Like this is actually really awesome. And then, you know, he goes and meets with some other people. We hang out for a little bit longer. And then he went up and did his meet and greet. And so the, you know, there were probably 200 people, 150, 200 people in the line for the meet and greet. And so my wife and I were almost sheepishly, were just like walking past all these people. It's like, yeah, we just got to hang out with them for like 10 minutes and have a nice conversation. Here they are just waiting for their one chance to be in line. And, you know, we got in the car and, and took off and, and went home. And I just got to tell you guys, like for, for days after, so that was on a Monday, like I felt like I was floating until like Thursday. And just to be honest, I was in such a good mood. I felt like it was such a blessing from God that that was able to work that, you know, he and I kind of started having a little bit of a relationship and a dialogue and how that will, you know, help out in the in the future. But what that kind of led to whenever I posted the picture, the pictures online on social media, the big question was, is did you do an interview with him? When's it coming out? Like some of you guys thought it was coming out, but I, you know, I released the interview with you and me park, which, you know, has done incredibly well. But the, the answer to that question is no, we didn't do an interview. Not yet. But, you know, I've, I've talked with his team and you guys do not even, you can't even fathom how busy he is. The things he's doing for himself, for his multiple businesses, for the Daily Wire, for writing, he's got a lot of things going on, but it's going to happen eventually. I have full faith that it's going to happen eventually, but it, it may be a while. Okay. But that is something that we certainly will get down. But one thing I want to do before I let you guys go is I actually want to talk about why Jordan Peterson is so important to me and, and so many others, especially men. And I actually threw that out there on social media. You know, hey, why is Jordan Peterson so important to you? And the answers were everything from he's not, he's stupid, which it's like, okay, great. Thank you for feeling the need to post that to guys that are like, hey, I was addicted to meth. And then I started listening to his lectures and I started to clean my life up or, hey, my, my life was in shambles. I was thinking about committing suicide. And then I started reading his books and it really kind of took care of things for me. And so people have a deep level of appreciation for Jordan Peterson. But one of the reasons why he's so important to me is that he wrote one of the greatest books ever, 12 Rules for Life. So on our book list on our website, undaunted.life backslash book list, we have the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. 12 Rules for Life is like a top five, maybe top three book for me ever. It's just such an important book that it can be put into the self-help space, but it doesn't feel like all these other vapid self-help books where it's just like, believe and achieve and you can do it and, you know, sit down and visualize and all of a sudden the world will, you know, open up to you or something like that. He really digs down into a lot of very, very important subject matters in that book. And so just by virtue of that, I mean, that book, I own that book in physical copy, digital copy and audio, right? Like it's a very, very important book and I've listened to it several times. It's just, it's an incredible thing. It's very important. Another reason he's so important to me is his demeanor during contentious interviews or debates. So if you've been following Jordan Peterson for any length of time, you know, he's been a part of some very contentious debates. He's been in these gotcha interviews that he knew were going to be gotcha interviews before he went in. He's been a part of gotcha interviews that he didn't know were going to be like that before he got in. But the way he handles himself is very, very honorable during these. 
Because you got to think of it. These people are trying to get him to say something that could get him canceled. They're trying to put him in a corner or something like that. He's just very, very calm. There was the one that he did just like the week before the 12 Rules for Life release. Uh, I forgot the lady's name. It's that blonde lady from the UK. And it was just a master class in how to set a hook and, and wait. Because this gal just kept like, you know, changing his words around and saying, so what you actually mean is, is so what you're saying is da, 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 da. And then she would change his meaning. And then finally he nailed her finally and got her. But he's done that so many times with these people where he's like, he lets them talk, lets them talk. But then when he needs to turn up the heat a little bit in these interviews or debates, he does so. But he very rarely gets out over his skis or allows his anger or his negative feelings or, or uh, malice or any of that kind of come into what he's doing. And so for me, with a very strong personality and I like to fight and I like to get into these debates, it's good for me to understand that there's a time and place to be calm and to let them you know, come into the trap. And then there's a time and place to smack them. He's also important to me because he has a tremendous knack to talk just beyond your intellect while still allowing you to follow along with what he's saying. I think that was actually my wife's comment when we went home to where it's just like, okay, you know, she had, hasn't spent a lot of time with his, his materials, but it's just like, you know, he has this ability to kind of just be just beyond your intellectual capacity, but he's kind of bringing you along with him because, you know, to be honest, some of his interviews he has on his podcast, is just like, what in the world are these people talking about? I have no freaking idea what these people are even, even talking about right now. And I'm 45 minutes in, but again, specifically when he's talking just by himself, like he'll nerd out when he's talking to another clinical psychologist or a researcher or something like that. When, when it's just him, he's not going to insult you. He's not going to insult your intelligence. He's going to almost pull you along to something a little bit higher. Another reason that he's important to me and so many other people is that he calls all men to a higher version of themselves and does so passionately. Part of the reason why he's persona non grata in the world of academia, part of the reason why he's hated by many people on the left is because those are institutions and groups of people that hate men. And so they want men to be weak. They want them to have no foundation. They want them to be just these limp fish that just kind of move their way through life and they can just be easily you know, pushed to this side or that side. But Jordan Peterson says no. He calls all men to be a higher version of themselves. And he talks about strength and how men should be strong. They should be monstrous, but in positive ways, right? Because he talks about all the time, and he's mentioned it before, that if you think a, a strong man is dangerous, wait till you see what a weak man can do. And again, this, this is a guy that is very much so an uh, expert on what happened in the 20th century and all these different regimes. And like Hitler wasn't a strong man. He was a weak man that ended up making some strong moves and getting strong people around him which eventually led to the murder and slaughter of tens of millions of people overall. If you talk about the Holocaust and the world war, uh, the people that died in world war two. So I just love that. He calls these men uh, you know, unapologetically to be a higher version of themselves, but he also shepherds young men that don't have a pastor or a father figure that's integrally involved in their lives. This is where people start to get a little bit uncomfortable because it's like, well, he's not a Christian pastor and he didn't go to, you know, this seminary and he didn't do this and he didn't all those different things. But there are men, young men in Christendom that don't have a pastor, a father, or a father figure, any of those types of people that are discipling them, shepherding them towards these beneficial things for themselves and for society and to a higher morality overall. But Jordan Peterson is that for them. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all because of the type of morality he's pushing them towards. And I talked about that on the last point. Another thing is that he has taught a whole new generation of Christians, especially men, what the original meaning of the word meek is. 
Because again, a lot of pastors didn't talk about this. Maybe they didn't even know this. But when you look at the word meek, as it's written in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we understand that now in our modern parlance is somebody that's weak, right? They, they navel gaze, they're constantly looking down, they're going along to get along, they're, you know, I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against, they're just meh, meh, kind of demure, right? But meekness in its original context and original definition is, no, you're fully in charge of your power, that you have full power, but it's under voluntary control. It's a knight that knows how to use the sword, but leaves it sheathed until the last moment. In a Christian context, it's, okay, I have the fullness of my abilities that God has given me, and I am tethering them to him to direct whenever he wants me to unleash them. And he talked, you know, he talked about like a meeked war horse. That war horse would be worthless if it wasn't strong anymore. And so you keep its strength there, but you put it under the voluntary control of the rider. Okay. Jordan Peterson basically taught that to, to modern Christians, because I don't remember ever hearing in my 20 years of being a Christian before that ever hear anyone talk about something even vaguely close to that. So he's done that. Another thing is that Jordan Peterson has a reverence for the Bible, for the word of God that rivals many people that would identify as Christians. So he, he really came to prominence early on, before 12 Rules for Life, before his first appearance on the Joe Rogan Experience, by doing a psychological breakdown of the Genesis, the book of Genesis. And again, he was coming at it as a secular clinical psychologist, but he has a reverence for the stories and the archetypal characters that are a part of the Genesis account. And he has spent more time in the Bible, going into Exodus, going into looking at the archetype of Christ and things like that, than many Christians would ever do. Because again, especially if you grew up in an area like me, I grew up in Oklahoma. So just by virtue of the fact that I was born on this beautiful red clay, I'm a Christian, right? I automatically believe in God, right? And again, especially in the Bible Belt, just believing in God is enough. You don't need to believe in Christ. Like, ah, oh, it's part of the package deal, right? So there's no reverence. There's no appetite for the Bible. And again, you have Bibles everywhere. There's three book, Bible bookstores in your town. And, you know, at your family's house, there are four or five of them sitting on the bookshelf. Most of them had dust on them. And the fact that the Bible was around so much, we don't get the same attitude towards the Bible. Someone that's like a Christian in Iran or North Korea or China or Eritrea or one of these places where you will literally lose your life if they find you with one of these Bibles, right? It's capital offense. Okay. But his reverence for the Bible is that of somebody that doesn't know when his Bible is going to be taken away from him. And again, you can quibble with his theology and his approach to it and all those different things, but you can't quibble with the fact that he has a tremendous reverence for the Word of God. Also, he gets me to think about the Bible from a different perspective. Again, I would highly suggest you go to the Daily Wire and look at the, the whole uh, Exodus series, because again, you have some people there that are uh, secular Jewish writers, you have you know Orthodox Jews, you have Christian theologians, you have evangelicals, you have you know Jordan, who's you know kind of coming from the secular point of view uh, within psychology and things like that. But when you listen to these giants, these intellectual giants talk about the Book of Exodus, you just cannot help but think about the scriptures differently. Because we all bring our own lives to the scriptures, right? Some of us have been convinced that somehow the Bible's about us, that, you know, we're David in the story of David and Goliath. But again, if you pull out from that and think about the significance of that document, because as Jordan Peterson has rightly said, it's not a book as much as it is a library. But if you look at that library, like these collection of texts, it's incredible that it's even here, but it can be 
evaluated from a multitude of different perspectives, which is important. But also, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, I'll maintain it until I change my mind, or if I change my mind, Jordan Peterson is the most important non-Christian public figure to Christendom on earth right now. Because again, looking at the fruit and looking at his own words, I don't think that you can say he's a Christian in the sense that he has trusted in, put his faith in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice on the cross for the propitiation of his sin. I don't think that we can say that right now. But I feel like he's close. He is just so close because he's got the reverence for Scripture. He has Christians around him constantly. He's digging even more into the Scriptures. He's seeing how the Old Testament aligns with the New Testament, how it's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, how it's just God. And again, he's thinking about God in this archetypal sense as like a necessity to the overall flourishing of humanity, not necessarily like in reality, but he's there. But talk to any pastor, well, not any, talk to a lot of different pastors, talk to elders in churches, talk to deacons, talk to different people in leadership, talk to just lay people that, that go to church and are really, really involved. Almost all these people have a tight-knit relationship with Jordan Peterson's content. Yes, they will read Spurgeon, and they'll read Calvin, and they'll read MacArthur, and they'll read whoever their favorite pastor is now. Like the, They'll read these people, and they'll, they'll go back, and they'll study the ancient texts, and they'll, they'll study the, even the, the non-Christian Josephus and Tacitus and Celsus and all these different— they'll study. They'll, they'll go look at the church fathers, and then they'll read through Augustine and then switch over and read through all these different people. Jordan Peterson is part of that mix too. And it's just incredible that a guy that is essentially doing college lectures is selling out arenas all over the country and all over the world. Again, there were about 3,000 people that were in the convention center whenever I was there. But when he went to Perth, Australia, a couple of months back, again, in Western Australia, there's not really a whole lot there uh, that's going on. He sold out an arena, and I believe it was 12,000 people on two separate nights, back-to-back. 12,000 people in one night, very next night, 12,000 more people. And it wasn't a rock show. It wasn't a comedian. It's a college professor. It's a clinical psychologist. But you have to ask, what is he tapping into? Because he's not just talking about the Bible. He seemingly doesn't, uh, he doesn't seem or sound like somebody that's just using Genesis and Exodus to make a bunch of money. He's genuinely interested and he wants to share his insights with the rest of the world. That's why he's so important as a, again, how I would say a non-Christian, he's so important to Christendom overall. But he is close to being a Christian, I believe. And if I would have had more time with Jordan, and certainly we, we have plans to, to be around each other more in the future, I would take a passage like the one I started this podcast with, John 9, 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Because, guys, that's the crux of all of this. Jordan Peterson's a very important guy. He's made tens of millions of dollars off the sales of his book. I think 12 Rules for Life has sold over 7 million copies. Guys, a lot of publishing houses are just beside themselves if they can sell 10,000 copies in the first week of a release of a book. And maybe overall 50,000, 75,000, maybe even 100,000 over time, seven plus million copies. I looked at the Amazon charts the other day. That book, which was released, I can't remember, it was released quite a while ago. It's still in the top 10 of all books being sold on Amazon right now. Beyond Order is up there as well, the follow up book. He's got another book coming out later this year called, uh, it's, I think it's called We Who Wrestle with God or Wrestling with God, something like that. But 
I would ask him, what about the son of man? Because when I was going through the the list of questions that you could text, you know, before the speech or whatever, most of the ones that got upvoted were like, hey, what do you think of the New Testament? What do you think of the Gospels? Do you think Jesus is the Son of God? Do you think Jesus was an actual real person that we have from history? Do you think he was resurrected from the dead? Do you think that God did that? What is, how do you explain how the first century church came to, you know, be the second century church and the third century church? Like, how did it survive Rome? How did it survive actual persecution, not how we call persecution today? But Jordan, do you believe in the Son of Man? Because you can have reverence for the book of Genesis and reverence for, for Exodus and reverence for the Bible overall and the necessity of a God. But if you don't put your faith in Jesus, that when he died on the cross, that that somehow counted for you, it's kind of all for naught, isn't it? You're going to have a big impact. You're going to be one of those one in, one in 10 million, one in 100 million, one in 1 billion people. You know, you sold all these books. You've made all this great content. You put it out there for everybody. But if you don't put your faith in Christ, you have nothing at the end of the day. And so for all of us, we should hope and pray that Jordan and others in our lives would accept that, would accept the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins so that we could be before the Father. All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. That Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So again, just want to remind you guys, go to the Origin website. It's right here linked to check out the full line of Origin and Jocko Fuel products. That is geese, jeans, boots, energy drinks, protein, supplements, hunting gear, all of that. Use the promo code UNDAUNTED to get 10% off your order. And then for the rest of the things I've got here, I've got a link to our donation page. i got a link to the Fox News article about the Asbury University revival ending. I've also got a link to that J.D. Greer article on the uh, Gospel Coalition website. I've got a link to Jordan Peterson's tour dates website. So if he's coming anywhere near you, I would highly suggest you guys go and check that out. And then also I have a link to Jordan Peterson's Daily Wire page. They have more Jordan Peterson content behind their paywall than anything. They keep releasing new series. And you know, all the speeches that he does on tour are recorded and put up there on the website. I would highly suggest you guys check that out as well. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.